Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Morning, church. Um, If you've been following our Ezra series, you will notice that the Bible readers have been pronouncing some interesting um, Hebrew names. I'm happy to tell you today that I will not be doing that. Um, So, the Bible reading will be taken from the book of Ezra, chapter 7, from verse 11 to verse 28. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you reply with, thanks be to God. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the, the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs together with their grain offerings and drink offerings and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of Israel of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. And you, 
Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be, put to, put, be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of my God was on me, I took courage and gathered Israel's from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Roger Dahlia, and um, we should have given you some few, a few, a few Hebrew words there. Too. Yeah, good morning, everyone. How are you all doing today? Threatened to rain, but it didn't quite, the threat didn't really come through. Um, I think let's, let's just pray first. He said that we wanted to come and drink from the well that is Jesus. Jesus says, come to me. Anyone who is thirsty, let them come and drink. For out of the belly of those that believe shall flow rivers of living water. But he spoke about the Holy Spirit. God himself is Elohim. Adonai is the one that we invite at this time. But we ask that you move, O oh God, in our midst. God, we ask that you speak to us and that we'll drink, O oh God, from your well. Lord, we pray that as we listen, oh God, we'll listen in a heart, with a heart of reverence and worship. Lord, we pray that as we do so, that you honor us, oh God, with your presence that is able to change and transform us. Elohim Adonai. we know that you are here. Even though you sit on your throne, your spirit is here to illuminate us. In Jesus' name we pray. So, um, as OJ said, we've, if you've not joined us for a while, we've been doing the book of Ezra. We started earlier in the year, and we do well, not earlier in the year, we do, we do. We took a break for a short uh, parenting series, and now we're back. We started last week. Um, but, you know, if you are new here, um, I don't know whether I said my name, I'm Femi, and I'm lead pastor here. But as if you are old here, you also know that I go by another title. 
favorite title of all? Who wants to help me with that title? The CSTO, the chief. No, not the assistant. That's, you know, the pretender to the throne. Uh, the, pretender to the, the chief storytelling officer. I'm good with that, thank you. The chief storytelling officer. And that's because I like to tell stories. And I've got a story for you guys today. How many of you want to hear the story? Even if you don't want to hear, you hear it. You hear it. You came here. You think I wrote the story just for... You hear it. Story, story. story. Once upon a time... Now, before I say, I want you to listen attentively because, you know, the, the, first, the first service, they didn't get it. They didn't fully get it. Some of them got it, but many of them didn't get it. I was like, ah, it's meant to be a brilliant church. So you guys are going to get it. And if you don't get it, I permit you to lie with your face like you got it. Okay? Story, story. Once upon a time, a pastor visited a couple in his church for dinner. You like where this is going now, I'm open for invitations, by the way. After that day, the dinner, the wife searched earnestly for the special spoon um, that they had given to the pastor to use. After the uh, search yielded nothing, she told her husband, honey, I can't find the spoon that the pastor used. Somebody say fishy. To which he replied, I think he may have stolen it. She was troubled by this, but she said nothing. Month go by, month go by, she says nothing. But the next year, after the pastor returned for dinner, the wife, with a full year of suppressing her curious frustration, could resist no longer and finally blurted out to the man of God with all due respect. And we all know, when you put all due respect, there's no respect that is coming after. Just say with all due respect, Pastor, did you steal the, our spoon last year? Somebody say awkward. After a long, awkward pause, he, restored, he responded by saying, with all due respect, I didn't steal it. I simply left it in your Bible. Some of you are not lying. I told you to lie. Huh? Wow, 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 wow. We'll break it down for you people, don't worry. You'll finally get it. For one whole year, they had not opened that Bible. <laughs> Evidently. And this story is illustrative of how the Bible is simultaneously the, most, the best-selling book and the least read book of all time. Best-selling, off the charts. Why last did you read it? Ah. We are getting there. And you know, among us Christians, with that kind of contrast in place, it leads to something. A certain level of biblical ignorance. My question is this. Rather than just lament the biblical ignorance, what do we do about it? I don't know about you guys. If there's something I don't know, I often would look, uh, maybe first of all, nowadays, okay, before, this wasn't the first step, but now this is the first step. I look on Google or YouTube, maybe there's a video on it. If there's none, I look to try and find somewhere to read about it. But there's one other one I really like. I look, I adopt a hero. I look for somebody who has exemplified this thing and I adopt them as a hero and I try to just watch them and see how they've done it. 
Now, I don't know how many of you, when we look in the Bible, how many of us have heroes in the Bible? Some of us have heroes, or you've had heroes before. Let me tell you some of the heroes you'll have had. You'll have had Abraham. Some of us had Abraham because of his faith. Some of us will have had Moses, you know. It's just Moses. It's just the way it sounds. Moses. Moses. There's something about that. You just say Moses. You just hear ten plagues. You know, that kind of thing. Power. Some of us is David. You know, because what is it you can't get from David? Is he leadership? He was a king. Is he, you know, for some of these guys, guys here that our game, our songwriting game is not there, you know. You know, David, he could, write, he could write some of those things. He was prophetic as well. So maybe it was David. But all that is Old Testament. New Testament, I'm sure, most of us, Paul. A lot of us, Paul, right? And we know that because as Africans, you know, Paul was bold, and so we like somebody that is like us, men and women. All right? So um, how do I know that those are some of your heroes? Let me tell you how. One. Most of us, uh, when we want to have, well, maybe some of us, when we want to have children, we're either going to name them, at least the boys, we're going to name them Abraham, Moses, David, or whatever. And say, no, that's not me. Okay. But here's another way I can find out. How many of you know an Abraham, personally know any Abraham in your life? You know an Abraham. Just know an Abraham. Uh, yeah, most of us, you remember. Okay, how many of us know a Moses? Uh, some of us, we have a Pastor Moses here, so there's no it's evidence. How many of us know David. He's there, he's there, he's there, he's right there, he's right there. How many of us know a Paul in our life? Uh, a few, right? Number. Now, let me tell you one person we don't adopt as a hero. How many of you know Ezra? Uh -huh, yes, a few. I, know, I, don't, I was thinking about it. I know one, there's a guy called Ezra Klein. He writes for the New York Times. But other than that, I don't think I know any Ezra. Personally, a few of you. Right? I, I, I do? I know. Okay, okay. Well, maybe there's one. All right. But we don't, we don't choose Ezra. We don't choose Ezra. Why? Let me tell you something. If Christians and Jews, first of all, were known as people of the book, do you know why we are people of the book? The number one person responsible for that legacy of being people of the book is not Moses, it's not David, it's not Paul. In fact, it is who? Ezra. Ezra was a Bible man, and we're going to see that a little bit today. And Ezra, understanding where we are in the history of this thing, Ezra understood that even though the people had been restored to the land, and they had, been, they had restored the temple, all of that is not going to be enough if they missed the restoration of a particular thing. You know what that was? The restoration of the word. Because Ezra knew this. The people, if, they were if there was a restoration of the word into their lives, they would then be restored by the word. The name of this series is The Gracious Turnaround. No matter what, you know, prayers we can pray over you and all the different things, let me tell you this, you will never really get to where God wants you to be if you are not restored by his word. And so that's why we've titled this sermon today, Restoration by the Word. Is that what yeah, Restoration by the Word. And I do pray that at the end of it, that you feel equipped, that you feel set up to experience both a restoration of the word in your life and a restoration by the word in your life. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at it under these three headings, um, known for the word, growing in the word, and purpose of the word. Known for the word, growing in the word, purpose of the word. Oh, that is good. All right, known for the word. Now, here's the story thus far, right, just for historical context so that we can understand where we are. Um, the Jews, God's people, they sinned a lot. And over a number of years, God wondered, wondered, they didn't hear what. So, eventually, he sent 
Babylon to conquer them. Now, Babylon then exported many of them. The first time they did that was in 605 BC. After that, they did five nine, in 597 BC. So, eight years apart. These ones were nice. They were like, you know, people were applying and going to the uh, visa office and all of that. Some of them they rejected, some of them they took. The best ones they took, the bad ones they left. But at some point, they rebelled against them, and in 587 or 586, 586 or 586, 586 BC, the Babylonians came in, crushed Jerusalem, and then forcibly took a lot of, most of them going, and they left the poor in Jerusalem, okay? Now, in 539 BC, something significant happened. So this is about 60, uh, 50 years after, something significant happened. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, the Persians, right? By Cyrus the Great, who we'll see very, very shortly. And because of that, all the people that were under Babylon now became under Persia. And that's why when you read this book, Ezra, you read Nehemiah, and you read Esther, it's all set within the context of rulership under the Persian Empire. Do you understand? And so the Persian kings all of a sudden play a crucial role in the restoration of the people of God. That's why we'll hear about the number of Persian kings. That's number one. Number two is this. One of the things that we've noticed in this letter, and you can see it also in, in Nehemiah and in Esther, is you don't see extraordinary miracles as we know. We don't see the parting of the Red Sea. We don't see um, people, you know, um, like uh, in time of Elijah and Elisha. You don't see all of those. What we do see, though, is extraordinary things happening through policy letters. I know that sounds boring, but actually it's really important. Policy letters are all over. They can be called decrees, they can be called statements, all of those things, but it's policy letters. And these policy letters are the means of either demonic opposition or miraculous interventions, the policy letters. Now, what here's what I want to do, because they're so important, and because we have one policy letter here, I want us to do a sort of historical review of some of the significant policy letters as we consider the different Persian kings. And that will help us set the context to explain this better. Is this okay? All right? Again, if you don't find it okay, we are still going to do it anyway. All right? But it's nice to get your supposed consent. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the kings, and we're going to look at their reigns. All right? And then we'll talk about some significant policy changes. So can we have some of the kings? All right? The first, these are the first six kings. These are their reigns. Remember I said that he conquered, Cyrus the Great conquered uh, Babylon in 539 BC. So let's talk about Cyrus the Great. We met him in Ezra 1, 1 to 4. He was the one that gave the order for the first generation Jews to go back to build the temple, right? Under the leadership of a guy called Zerubbabel and another guy called Joshua. So you can read that in Ezra 1, 1 to 4. They were to go back. So they went back. However, enemies all around and this put the frustration to the rebuilding of the temple. In fact, in Ezra 4, verse 24, we are told that it came to a standstill. That's what happened in Cyrus's time. Uh, the other two are somewhat irrelevant. You will not be relevant to your life. All right, so we have nothing for them. Darius the Great, he was really, really important, right? Because what did he do? He ordered that the temple start to be rebuilt. Again, we see this in Ezra 6 to, uh, 6 to 12. And in fact, it was completed in Ezra 6, verse 15, again, through decrees and policies, all right? And this really summarizes Ezra 1 to 6. It's about the first generation uh, returnees. They went back in 539 
to rebuild. They completed it in 520. Now, virtually almost, okay, no, let's talk about this next day. Xerxes, he appears for us in Ezra 4, verse 6, I think, Ezra 4, 6. It doesn't, we, we don't, if you want to know about his own policies and all of that, his stupidity policies, just read about, don't read the whole book of Esther, all right? That's the guy, he threw parties and went to demonstrate. Just, that's the guy, all right? But who we're talking about now is Artaxerxes. Now, that's the guy we meet here. Artaxerxes is the guy who is king from the time of Ezra and the second generation of people. There was a second generation of people that then returned Right, Jerusalem, they went in 458 B.C. All the way to the other book that comes with this, which is called Nehemiah. Now, in Nehemiah's time, actually, they were able to build the walls. So there was the temple building, but now there are the walls. And this happened in 444 B.C. Okay? So we see all of these things and the dates and the kings. Question, though, and give me that, um, the next, that other slide. Here, why, here's why I've said all of this. We understand under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel that they returned and they completed the rebuilding of the temple. Fast forward to 444, we understand in the time when Nehemiah went that he restored and rebuilt the what? The walls. Question, Ezra is returning. What's he going to restore? Now, for us to understand that, we need to then look at the letter that was sent with Ezra, the letter, the policy letter from the king. This is no ordinary letter. This is an extraordinary letter. I know it didn't seem like that when OJ was reading it, but I'll try and hopefully break it down to you because as far as policy changes are, this one is like, this is really big. This would be like somebody saying something like, no more fuel subsidy remover, right? Something like that. Now, I'm not saying, some of us will say that's not um, favorable. It's not a good thing. Some of us say it's a good thing. I'm just saying the radical nature of it. But this one's really positive. Let me show you. The letter is really divided into six parts. The letter goes from verse 13 to 26. I'm not reading everything, but let me just tell you these six parts. The first one is the order to return. He basically says this. If anybody wants to volunteer to go with Ezra, they can go back. Okay, the order to return, verse 13 and 14. But here's, the, here's where the good things start happening. He said, by the way, even though you're volunteering, Ezra, see, me, the king, and all my advisors, my cabinet, we're going to give you money, right, for you to make any sacrifice you want to make in the temple. In fact, we'll give you a blank check. And by the way, I'm going to tell the people in the different regions, if you need extra supplies, I'll give you money as well. I'm like, wow, really? For all the sacrifices. Then you go to verses, that's 15 to 18. And then verse 19 to 20 is also there were things that were taken away from the temple when the Babylonians conquered them. And now said, we will give you those things to go back. And any other thing, any other thing you want from the temple, we all, for the temple, you can also have. That's the third category. Now, the fourth and the fifth category is not directly to Ezra or the people. It's now to the provincial governors in the trans-Euphrates where they are going back to. Uh, this, uh, I love these ones. Okay, number four, here's what it says. It says, to those people, an order for extra provincial supplies. Anything these guys want, you must give them from your coffers. But here's my own favorite part. My own favorite part is number five. This is what number five says. It's special tax exemptions. This is verse 24, verse 24. Special tax exemptions. 
It says, you are also to know, he's still talking to those governors, you are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tributes, or duty on any of the people. No, no, he didn't say any of the people. No, 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 you missed it. He said, on the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, or other workers at this house of God, to which all the church staff said, Right? Now, just imagine that. Imagine President Bola Ahmed Tinubu says, City Church, like I must say, I had just met him. I said, City Church, I know that you guys have to build a building. Here's what's happening. Me and my entire cabinet, we are going to give a lot of money. And then when you get to Lagos, tell Baba Jide Songwolu, Governor Baba Jide Songwolu, that any tax that they want, any tax, any duty, anything, you and your staff, they are exempt. I thought you would say amen. Now, wow, see Babelo. Now, wow, church. Is it because not you? Oh, by the way, if this thing is going to happen because I may be prophesying, it means you guys must pay all your taxes. Right? Just, just, just so you know. All right. So, special tax exemptions. Can you see what, how all of this is building? And it's all building towards something. He then says, for the last category, which is from 25 to 28, is, to, is the order to set up a Jewish judicial system that will be used to administer justice for the people. Essentially, he's basically saying we are radically altering our stance towards God's people. Somebody say grace and favor. Now, don't get it twisted, though, because what this is leading to is ultimately a restoration of their Jewish, a godly Jewish life. That's what it's leading to. Now, don't get it twisted. The king is not doing this out of some form of, he wasn't converted to worshiping the God of the, the Jews. He used to call him the God of heaven. The God. He said he even dwells in Jerusalem. No. In fact, he tells us his main motive. He says it almost with some kind of anger in verse 23. Uh, the B part of verse 23. I love what he says. He says, why should that you have to do all these things, you provincial people. He said, because why should this, why should his wrath, the God of heaven, why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and of his sons? In other words, he's doing all of this so that he will not anger that particular God. He did it for other gods as well. That is his own motive. But Ezra understands that whilst this king is essentially issuing a policy for his own good, there is another king who rules in the affairs of men. And when he does this, he is, he, Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, he says the heart of the king is in the hand of God and he's able to turn and twist it any way he wants. So Ezra knows what the king is doing it for, but he knows what God is doing it for. And so that's why it says in verse 27, praise be to the God of our ancestors who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord God in Jerusalem in this way and who has extended his good favor to me. Can I just pray as an aside? I don't know whether where it's at work or maybe you're a business person and you're expecting a government policy to come. They may be doing it for other reasons, but I do pray that the God who rules in the affairs of men will do it for your favor. He does so. He also says, the hand of the Lord God was on me. That is, there was the grace of God there. But as I said, here's what this letter was essentially doing. This letter was helping them. What, what Ezra meant to go and do, this letter was to restore a godly Jewish way of living. Why is this important? 
If you establish the way of worship, the temple, restore it, and you establish or restore economic stability, the walls, and you don't restore a godly way of life, then at best, you will have a prosperous, superficially religious people. Should I say that again? If you restore the mode of worship so people can go to church, people can do all of those things, and you also restore economic stability for the people so that they're prospering, you know what? At best, without restoring a godly way of life, at best, you would have a prosperous, superficially religious people. A couple of years ago, um, a lady came to meet me. She wanted to grow in her Christian faith. She wanted to grow in her Christian faith. So she came to meet me, and she said, I, I didn't grow up as a Christian. I have hardly, most of my life, I did not live a Christian life. But now I want to grow. So I was wondering, how did she get to this place where she's now coming to church and doing all those things? And she told me, actually, it was due to the guy she was dating, um, um, not, well, she was dating, uh, not at that time, but sometime before. I said, yeah, tell me about this guy. How did he get you into this? And she said, well, the guy introduced me to online Prayer gatherings, you know online prayer gatherings, the ones that you guys do, but you don't allow people to see, right? You'll be putting it inside your phone, your, your, your pocket, and be doing this. For those of us who are open about it, thank God for you. But many of us do it, right? Online, you know the online prayer gathering you're talking about? Eh? Eh? Uh, not just prayer as you go. <laughs> not just prayer as you go. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know why people are saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to call names, but you know what I mean, right? Online prayer, the ones that happen every day. From 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., something like that. I'm not calling any. So they started going for that. And she was, and she was doing that. But she then said, but okay, so you're no longer with the guy. Why not? She said, eh, it's because of what he does. Ah, what does he do? Ah, he's actually a yahoo boy. <laughs> now, honestly, honestly, I was, and because, again, you don't judge anyone. You don't, our journeys are different. Honestly, I was perplexed. And why was I perplexed? And I tried, as a pastor, you try not to act perplexed, but I was inside. So I just said, Auntie, please, can you help me understand? I know he's not here. He, he used to go for prayer, online prayer gatherings. Yes. And was a Yahoo boy. Yes. How did he do it together? They said, well, essentially, right, that was his hustle, and he figured out that he wasn't stealing from good people. He was stealing from bad people. And he had people that were under him that he was supporting. And so, as he's stealing from those bad people, he's also helping some people get out of poverty. So essentially, he was a modern-day spiritual Robin Hood. <laughs> if you restore the place of worship, come, pray, all of these things, online prayer gathering, and you restore economic prosperity, or at least the potential for economic prosperity, and you don't restore a godly way of life, then all other things can be done in the name of God. Somebody was telling me last week about ah, celebrity influencers that will start podcasts. They will tell you about the prophetic way God has been speaking to them. And yet, they will be telling you about the number of bodies that they have, the people that they are sleeping with. And we all just... Yeah. And this thing is actually... It happened in the Bible, though. I, one of my favorite passages... Well, not favorite, but it's, it's illustrative. This is in Judges 17. There was a lady, a woman. She had a grown-up son. But it's like some people stole her silver. So you know how, I'm sure she was Yoruba, and you know the Jews, they say Jews are like Ijebus, you know, because the Jews came, no, it's true. No, no, the Jews came, from, you remember the Jews, uh, not, you know Jerusalem was the place of the Jebusites. Jebus, Ijebu, 
Now, somebody actually said this. Well, I'm not going to call his name. All right. Anyway, so, so what, what are Yoruba people very good at? We are very good at, you know what they call ikwe, uh, to, to, to curse. So this woman cursed. She said, she said, whoever has taken my, my, my stuff, I put a curse on them. Later, the son finds out that, ah, Momsi has cursed too. And he's like, Mommy, uh, I was the one that took it. Voila. So she reversed the curse. And she now said, Yahweh bless you, my son. Not God bless you. Yahweh. So she's talking about the covenant God that she had. Yahweh bless you. She then says, I will now consecrate this silver to Yahweh so that my son can build an idol. And oh, it, it gets better. It gets better because the mom, the mom raised the son to even be better than her. So the son eventually he builds idols, and then he now has a shrine at home. But he's like, I can't be the one over this shrine now. So one day he found a Levite roaming around. He now said, Come, okay, you don't have work. I have work. I can give you work. Come and be my priest. That one said, I'll be your priest. Where's hey, shrine? Eh, it's okay. And the way the chapter concludes is this: He said to himself, He says, Now I know that God will bless me. Why? Because the priest, right, he has, since this Levite has become my priest. You can restore the place, the place of worship, right, the, the temple, and restore economic prosperity, or at least chasing after economic prosperity. If you don't restore a godly way of life, all bets are off. This letter that Ezra had, this policy letter was to be able to get rid of that kind of nonsense. And I do pray if anyone is in this kind of thing, may the Lord deliver you. Amen. And may the Lord deliver our church, cheese, right? And even our own church from these kinds of things. Now, the question is this. Ezra was given the task. Why Ezra? What made Ezra suitable for this? What qualities did he have that distinguished himself to be the person that was going to do this? What was he known for? Can I tell you what Ezra was known for? You see this in Ezra 7 verse 6, Ezra 7 verse 10, Ezra 7 verse 11. Ezra 7 verse 6, we are told that Ezra was well versed in the law of Moses. Ezra verse 10, 7 verse 10, it says he devoted himself to the study of the law. Are you getting the picture? Or Ezra 7 verse 11, here's what he says. He says he was a man learned in matters concerning the commands and the decrees of the Lord of Israel. Ezra was a learned, well-versed teacher who studied the law. Can I put it in summary language? Ezra was known for the word. Ezra was known for the word. Turn to your neighbor and say, Ezra was known for the word. In fact, one, of the nice, one other nice passage is in Nehemiah. They've now set up the walls. They now call Ezra. Listen to what he says. All the people came together as one in the square. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly. Verse 3. He read it aloud from daybreak, like 6 a.m., till noon. Right? Some of us are already sleeping after 20 minutes of this sermon. All right? Touch your neighbor and say, wake him up. Wake up, wake up. All right. He says, from to noon, as he faced the square, in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, you think maybe they were sleeping. Listen to what he says about them. And all the people listened attentively. Here's one thing Ezra knew. Ezra knew if we are going to restore a godly way of life, the only way that happens is to restore the word back to the life of the people. Why? Because the restoration of the word 
is the only thing that precedes restoration by the word. Restoration of the word is what precedes restoration by the word. And not only Ezra, but the people themselves knew it. That's why they listened attentively. Ezra was known for the word. But the people themselves wanted to be known for the word as well. Question. You, here, you may be here. You are, you are known for fasting. Whether you're fasting spiritually is another thing, I don't know. But you are known for fasting. Or you are known for your integrity. Or maybe you are known for, you sing, you know all the new Nathanabasi, all the elevation worship songs. You have everything. You are known for your prayer life. Are you known for the word? Because you can restore the mode of worship back and restore economic stability. But without the word, you cannot restore a godly way of life. Ezra was known for the word. I pray you will be known for the word. Amen. Now, how can I be known for the word? How do we grow in this? It takes me to my second point. Growing in the word. Now, um, Ezra, we're told in verse 25, Ezra was, he had wisdom from God. Ezra has wisdom from God. Okay, I want to be wise. Who doesn't want to be wise? I mean, anybody here that wants to be foolish? Anybody? Not good. Thank you. Right? So nobody wants to be foolish. Now, here's the thing about wisdom. I can tell you about wisdom. Almost all the time, wisdom does not just suddenly appear. Wisdom grows. Right? Foolishness appears all the time. Just appears. It's free of charge. But wisdom grows. It's not something that just appears. Even Jesus, we are told in Luke 2 verse 52, that what? And Jesus grew in what? Wisdom. You grow in wisdom. Ezra grew in wisdom. But how did he grow in wisdom? It's because we are told he studied the word. It was, Ezra was wiser three years after, he was wiser three years after he started studying the word because he was studying the word for three years. If you met Ezra today, he was wiser today than he was yesterday. Why? Because he was growing in his study of the word. Don't you say, eh, you see that word? It's a bit complicated. I've tried. I've, I'm not growing in wisdom because I'm not growing the word. How can you help me in growing the word? Well, two things are important. Attitudes and discipline. Attitudes and discipline. So let's take the first one. Because Ezra had a particular attitude to the, in the word, to the word. You can have at least four different kinds of attitudes to the word. You want to know the four of them? Here's the one. Beside the word, over the word, inside the word, under the word. Beside the word, over the word, inside the word, under the word. Did you get it? Beside? Under. So what is beside the word? Beside the people that have the attitude of being beside the word are people that have the word simply as a Christian symbol. But they don't study it because they are really uninterested. I am talking to some of us who, you have the latest Bible app. Your own Bible app is not even the free one. You don't use the version. You use a paid-for one. You have every English translation known to mankind. And you even have Spanish ones as well. You have, like, you are a, like, you have everything. There's some of us are like, no, 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 all this digital stuff, you know, if I read it, I'm going to YouTube. No, no, no. You have printed Bible, the real word. And no, you don't just have the different translations. You also have the different colors and the different, you know, there's, you have bonded leather. You have your genuine leather. You have your goat skin leather, right? You have the black. You have the blue. Some of you, you're like, when you come, 
right? If you are wearing black, you bring your black Bible. If you are wearing red, you bring your red Bible. Like, you have it. Just one small problem. You don't open it. <laughs> but it's beside you. For some of us, and because we're uninterested, or we don't find it interesting, for some of us, it is that we are over the world. There are two kinds of people over the world. First one is people who have interest, but they solely read the word to find out whether they agree with what is there or not. Like I go into, uh, okay, do to others as you have them do to you. I agree to it to an extent, but you know, you don't know how that girl, when she broke my heart, uh -huh, you understand. Or, um, um, uh, okay, um, you know, in, invest wisely. Oh, okay, invest wisely. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, um, the Jews annihilated the Amalekites. Yeah, no, I don't think that's right. You know, so we stand over it. For some of us, we're not just skeptics. So there was a guy called Thomas Jefferson, third president of, of the United States. Thomas so Jefferson had his own Bible. Uh, what was the Bible? He went to the Gospels of Jesus Christ. He removed every, every occurrence of a miracle that was there. By the time he now finished, it was called the Jefferson Bible. And that was absolutely right. It certainly wasn't Jesus' Bible. It was what? It was the view of Jesus that he wanted to have. But then there's a second type of people that are over the word. These are people that really like the word. You believe all the things they are true, and you are looking to understand the word so that you can talk about those people in that church and those people in that church and all these other people. You just use the word to weaponize, you weaponize the word against all the people that are deviating from the word. Really, all the people that are deviating from your understanding of the word. You don't allow the word to actually speak to you. There are two kinds of people. Some people say those who read the word and those who allow the word to read them. If you don't allow the word to read you, you are over it. You are the, the main authority. Third one is those who are inside. Ah, those ones. The people that are inside is basically this. From Genesis to Revelation, anytime they open, they just quickly say, where am I? Where, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? Where is God blessing me? Where, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The world was without chaos, was with chaos and uh, form, without form and chaos. My relationship life is without form and it's chaotic. <laughs> And God said, let there be light. Hey, light has entered. Father, I receive. Oh, let it come. Let her come. Remove the chaos. You are finding yourself everywhere until you get to the book of Leviticus. You're like, eh, and there was a discharge that was, eh, no, 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 that not discharge me, care. What do I have to do? No, 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 no. Until you now get back to the psalm. Oh, I will lift my head to the hill. From where's coming? Which hills? My help comes from the Lord. He's my helper. Ebenezer, Ebenezer. You are always looking for yourself in the word. So you put yourself inside the word. Right? The truth is that those people read the Bible from a self-centered standpoint. They're not really trying to understand first what the word is saying. The final one is under. These are people who study the word with interest, but with a viewpoint of submitting to its good authority. Sometimes we don't fully understand what it says, but we, un we understand the God that authored it and said, look, God, I will believe you even when I don't understand. There is something like faith seeking understanding, whereas there is unbelief seeking justification. You see, someone that is unbelief, and uh, that where you have unbelief seeking justification, you will always find something wrong everywhere. Somebody that has faith seeking understanding is not blind faith, but he's saying, ultimately, I can't know more than God. So maybe I haven't found the explanation to this thing here that I will keep searching. May the Lord make you people who are under the word. Now somebody will say, eh, Pastor Femi, I like to be under the word. I like to be interested. The only problem is this. The Bible is big. Though. It is big. And it can be confusing and intimidating. How many of us 
sometimes believe the Bible is like that. Huh? Don't say it. Let, let's be honest. You are, even myself, sometimes I think it's, it's confusing. Right? So the question is, how do I grow in it when I'm not a scholar like Ezra? How can I, as a normal person who has normal work and all of those things, how can I grow? I've tried different ways. It's not working for me. Now, let me, I'll help you. I'm going to give you some tips. But the first thing I want to tell you before I give you those tips is this. When we say we are trying to grow in the Bible, we are really trying to grow in three things in understanding the Bible. Three things. What are they? Data, doctrine, devotion. Say it with me. Data, doctrine, devotion. Now, what's data? Data is basically the trivia, facts, right? CRK, Christian Religious Knowledge. I know they don't do it again in schools. But just how many books are there of the Bible? 66, right? So what we did, for instance, now you understand that Ezra and Nehemiah probably came, most likely came after um, uh, uh, Esther, right? You understand that Daniel was one of the people that went into exile in Babylon. So Daniel must have come before them. So you start understanding particular facts here and there of the Bible. You know where things are. This is really important because sometimes people don't understand the word because we are not sure where things. When I was about 16, 17, I didn't even know that New Testament was about when Jesus came. I just thought Jesus was everywhere. Because they told me that, you know, when Daniel was being burnt, uh, no, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were being burnt, there was somebody that appeared, and that was Jesus. And like I said, Jesus must have been the, you know, and if you are thinking, so it wasn't Jesus. No, it wasn't Jesus. I'm helping you. He said, eh? How? I am today's years old when I didn't know it was Jesus. Well, don't worry. I've helped you, but don't, don't, don't show your ignorance. Okay. So that's uh, data. Doctrine. Doctrine is understanding teachings. It's not just things that are there. It's not just history. There's specific history to teach us certain things. So when the Bible uses the word sin, what does it mean by sin? As you go through the Old and New Testament, when the Bible says God, who are we talking about? Is it just this one person? Is it the Father alone? No, we say it is the Father, Son, and Spirit. How can you, how can you understand that? It's by understanding the teachings of the Bible. Jesus, who is he? He's God and he's a human. He's God and he's man. Oh, what is that? These are teachings, theological teachings. Uh, doctrines of the Bible. It's important to grow in that as well. And then the third thing is devotions. Devotions are based on the facts and the theology or the doctrine. Based on the data and the doctrines, how does this apply to my life? How does this apply to my life? How does this speak into my life? Amen. So with that, let me share, share some tips with you guys on how I've been able to grow over the years. Because if you're going to grow, here's what you need to do. You need to build disciplines, all right? You need to build disciplines, biblical disciplines, within structural times. We say structural times. Biblical practicing, biblical disciplines within structured times. Practicing biblical disciplines within structured times. So let me show you with this table some of the things you can do. All right? So here we have the structured times. Daily, weekly, monthly, annually, occasionally. Right there, we have the different portions of the Bible you can Take within this structure time. So let's start with, the, we'll start with daily, we'll go to weekly, weekly, right? Weekly, you can, do, you can use chapters of the Bible. Don't, don't weekly just be on one verse. Chapters of the Bible, what do I mean by that? Repeated readings. Repeated readings, basically, you can either daily in that week or at the end of the week, just keep listening to one chapter of the Bible. Like, eh, what would that do? Believe me. You just even listening without actually studying, you become well versed in understanding that chapter just because you listen to it. Try listening to it morning, evening, morning, evening. Do that for seven days. 
and see whether you don't start understanding, even if it's just some facts, you will be able to know that. You may even be able to memorize verses just by doing that, right? But at the same time, you can also watch the sermon that you heard. So like this sermon now, hopefully we are dissecting the Bible. You've heard already now, but you want to hear again sometime during the week. So maybe a Tuesday or a Wednesday, so that you don't forget, I'll listen. When can I listen? On my way back. Uh, but how about prayer as you go? is on Monday, all right? At the gym, wherever. But you listen again and again, all right? All right, now, another one, monthly. What about monthly? Here you can do, I'll explain the in-depth study, you can do the week and the month. In-depth study, and by in-depth study, here's what I mean. So like weekly, you can at the end of the week, that same chapter, you can now sit down and start noticing particular things in, the, in, in it. Maybe you have a study Bible. There's some good study Bibles out there, the NIV study Bible, the ESV study Bible. Get them, look at the comments that the scholars are making, and so you're understanding well. Now, here's the thing. You can even do that with an entire book, not a chapter, in a month. And when you do that, certain things start to come up. You start to see. So, for instance, take, you can take 1 John and say, I'm going to listen to 1 John not just every day of the week, but I'm going to listen to 1 John 1 this week, 1 John uh, 2 the next week. So maybe a, 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 um, a, a month that has five weeks, right? You do the five chapters of 1 John. Some of you didn't know that 1 John had five chapters. Don't worry, we are, we are not judging anybody. But you can go through all of that. So then at the end of the month, you can give this last Saturday, you can give like three hours to that. But here's the thing, when you approach it, you already know so much about 1 John because you listen to it every single day. And you can start seeing certain things. Let me give you one experience I had. When I was doing some of these kinds of things, it was there I realized, born again language is hardly used in Pauline epistles, in Paul's epistles. Paul, when he talks about the Christian conversion, Paul often would say something like this. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, has he made alive? Paul's language for a Christian conversion is usually a spiritual resurrection, death to life. John, on the other hand, his own language was, you didn't exist, now you've been born. To those who he came to his own, his own did not uh, receive him, but to those who received him, to them he gave power to become children of God. Not those who are born of the flesh, nor the will of man, or of blood, but of God. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 says that, except, uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, except a man be born again. In 1 John, it says, who is it that overcomes the world? Is it not he who is uh, who is born of God. You see, born of God, born of God, born of God, born of God, born of God. I start seeing there's a difference in how John writes and how Paul writes and how Peter writes. Why? Because I just listen to John over and over and over and over again. Not because I have a big brain. You can do it as well. Amen. But also, you can do in-depth studies. This is where you need other people. And now, you see, we are so lucky we have so many tools, interesting tools that can help us understand these things. How many of you have heard of the Bible Project, for instance? Right? If you don't know the Bible Project, I'm telling you, go and look for them now. Get the app or go on YouTube. You'll just see summaries of certain books of the Bible that enable you to navigate it properly. Use those tools. So you can do in-depth studies. You can do weekly readings, all of these different things. And then I know um, 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 my friend Yemi uh, Oshunubi uh, does this. He will go back, he, he sets targets for sermon series releases. Sermon series releases. So he's not just, it's not just about releasing to this sermon, but he will say, hey, you know what? We did one on Christ and sexuality. 
in 2021. I'd like to hear what we thought about that. And you go and listen to it again. When you are doing all of these things, it's not that you are trying to memorize. It's just eventually it comes into your subconscious. But it has to be structured. It's not so much about how much you remember at the point. It's how disciplined you are to be consistent. Are you following me? Annually, get into a Bible reading plan. When I say Bible reading plan, try to read the Bible in one year or try to read the Bible in two years. There are various plans around there. I use a modified version of what they call uh, the McShane plan, Robert Murray McShane. In mine, I've said this before, but if you've not heard it, I read all, all, the, all the books of the Bible, but I'll read the book of Luke twice. I'll read the Psalms twice. I'll read Isaiah twice, and I think there's one more. So why I know where any of these things are is not because, again, I have a super brain. It's because the first thing I do in the morning, and it really doesn't take me up to 20, 15, 20 minutes, is just to read four chapters of the Bible a day. I'm not looking for anything magical, but I've been doing it for 10 years. And so when I'm in a crisis situation I need to pray, or somebody is going through an issue, I immediately know, yeah, this thing is. It becomes like photographic memory. Let me go to the book of Daniel. Are you following what I'm saying? You guys can do this. Find something like that. And then finally, I'll say occasionally, and I'll say, I said this for annual and um, for, um, for occasional. Theological articles and books. Set a target of reading two theological books a, a year. When I say theological book, I don't mean a 630 book tome. Just say, what is an accessible book that I can find on the Trinity? There are books that are 120 pages. You say 120 pages. 120 pages, if you do 12 pages a day. You'll finish in less than two weeks. But now you can go back to some of those scriptures that they were saying, oh, now I understand. If you, can't do, if you can't do the books immediately, do an article and I can reference, I can refer you to some places. For instance, there's something called City Church Blog, right? It's one church in Lagos that happened to have a blog. Just go on their website. There are some good articles for you there. But also, for better ones, you can go to uh, one that's really helped me um, and continues to help me. The, um, it's called the Christianity Today, right? Uh, that one has a bit of a, a paywall, but you can get some free ones because you know Nigerians, we love free stuff. But if you don't want them, you want the free one, go to the Gospel Coalition as well. You will see articles there that can strengthen your biblical knowledge. Guys, what I'm saying is this thing is possible if you are serious about it. But one I want to recommend to you when it comes to the devotional part is something called Lectio Divina. And Lectio Divina you should do daily, and you can do it with a verse or two of scripture. And Lectio Divina is an ancient practice. It's gone on for centuries now. And it's basic, it basically means sacred. Lectio Divina means sacred reading, sacred reading. This is a form of going over a text, digesting it, and applying it to your life in a almost a systematic way. So let me give you three steps, three of my own adapted steps of how you do Lectio Divina. And I'm going to do it using Philippians 4, 6 to 7. But it's basically this. Read and reflect. Read and reread. Read and meditate. Read and reflect. Read and reread. Read and meditate. When you're doing read and reflect, you're basically asking, is this true in me? So let's take for it Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7. Philippians 4, 6, says, do not be anxious about anything. But in prayer, in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You'll be like, okay, how do I do this? So go back to verse 6. Read and reflect. So you look at it. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, it didn't say do not be anxious about something. It's do not be anxious about anything. 
Am I anxious about something? So you start asking yourself, what am I anxious about? Now, first of all, you're going to tell yourself, no, I'm not anxious about anything. So you wait until the Holy Spirit tells you, yeah, stop lying. And I'll be like, okay, I am. I'm anxious about my job. I'm not sure about my job security. Oh, I'm anxious about that application I made. I don't know whether they'll grant me that visa. I'm anxious about my spouse. I'm anxious about my boyfriend. I'm anxious about, what is it you're anxious about? Say it. Say it. Then later you now say, okay, I'm honest. I was anxious about it. But it says, do not be anxious. But I'm sure there are some things. My child says, no, don't be anxious about anything. So we have a problem. Now the question is, why am I anxious? So you go and we read. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, so I have anything. And every situation, in other words, is anticipating that you have situations that can make you anxious. So in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then you stop. Say, oh. Because now you're asking what else is there when you reread. Like, oh, could this be why I'm anxious? Because my prayer life has actually gone down. Actually, when last do I daily give thanks to God? How is, is, my, is my, my worship life just more about, you know, looking for God's greatness to appear in my own whatever? Do I only just sing, Ebenezer, my help has come? Or do I adore God, not just in church, but actually regularly? <gasps> because I'm not praying, because I'm not offering petitions, because I'm not offering thanks to God, I am actually not seeing the greatness of God. And because God's greatness has been diminished in my life, the problems that I see and I anticipate are going to be magnified in my life. This is why I'm anxious. I would not be anxious in anything if in everything with thanksgiving and prayer, I now bring those things that could, be, I could become anxious out. I bring them as requests to God. Do you see it? This isn't, I'm not trying to find out the theology of Philippians. I'm not trying to just go into the whole context of Philippians 4. I'm taking a verse and I'm going over and over. And then he now says, oh, if I do this, there is a promise of the blessing of God. Now the peace of God that passes on understanding will guard my heart. Oh, so that means I have opened my heart like not having a burglar bar or I've not locked the door. So Satan is coming with anxiety. So when I now do these things, ah, so then you get to the third step. You are meditating. And meditation really is about three things. You are basically, you are going to repent, you are going to receive, and you are going to request. Repent, he says, don't be, but you are. So you have to confess, Lord, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. Don't lie about it. The first step to deliverance is always, always acknowledgement and confession. But you now remember that the Bible also says that if anyone sins, we should confess our sins. Why? Because we have an advocate with God, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins. Not one. Not the petty ones. Not the big ones. Not every sin. Even if it's a repeated sin. So you receive Jesus. This is understanding the gospel for your everyday life. And then you request. Make your request known. You ask for the strength to actually do these things. And here's one more thing. When you leave that sacred reading, you don't leave it there. You carry that sacred reading in your heart throughout the day. So now you're about to appear before the CEO or you're about to 
give that marketing presentation, and you feel that anxiety come in, you say, Lord, I receive your peace again. Lord, I thank you because you are here with me. You have said you will never leave me on sickness. You will be able to do that rather than, who can I call? Hey, I'm in trouble. I've forgotten this. Non-anxious presence because of your sacred reading. Guys, this is how you grow in the world. There are some disciplines that you have to do there. It helps you with data and it helps you with doctrine. But also there are other disciplines that help you with devotion where you are meeting the God of the word through the word of God. Amen? Now, finally, in my final point, um, I say all of those because, like, I took you through that lecture divina exercise. Why? Because it is possible to miss the point of the Bible. Remember what I said? It's the word of God, but you have to meet the God of the word. And that's what we are trying to do. But you see, the challenge is that we often miss the point. When we read the scriptures, we often miss the point. Just like, as these people are coming up now, you miss the point about why they're coming up. It's not for you to be looking at them. It's to look at me, as some of you are. Don't worry, back, brought you back. I don't know if you've ever met anyone that misses the point. You know, just, you say something, they just miss the point. They, they saw a point, but they missed the point. Like the guy who went late to work, and his boss said, you should have been here at 8.30. The guy said, why? What happened at 8.30? Some people have missed the point. They've not forgotten the point of the joke. Okay, let me try another one. It was between a guy and a psychiatrist. Guy tells his psychiatrist, it was terrible. I was away on business and I emailed my wife that I'd be back a day early. On that early day, I came. I rushed from the airport to go and meet her. And I found her in bed with my best friend. Somebody say, ha. Oh. Somebody say, ha. Oh. He says, I don't get it. How could she do this to me? Well, said the psychiatrist, maybe she didn't see the email. Some of you are catching it. You're catching it now. You're catching it. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't miss the point. If you think studying the scriptures is just to gain more knowledge and gain some kind of esoteric wisdom, I can tell you, you are like that psychiatrist. You miss the point. What do I mean by that? Because yes, we should get discipline. Yes, there are principles in the Bible. Yes, there are all of those things. But we can miss the point of the Bible. Because if the Bible is the word of God, what does a word do for a word of someone? What does it do? It reveals the person. Once you start talking, I can start finding out certain things about you. For instance, as I've been talking, like you say, well, here's one thing I know. He's probably studied the Bible. Well, he's using English, so he probably went to primary school or secondary school. What you don't know, based on what I've said today, is how I treat my wife. Or you don't even know if I have a wife. You may not even know whether my parents are alive or not, because I have not disclosed all of those things. In other words, words are limited. And even if I told you some of these things, there are still things you will not know. Even if I try to explain it, maybe sometimes my language may be an issue. Maybe you are thinking about something else. I'm saying that those words reveal a person Words themselves are limited. There are things that I myself would like to say, but I don't even know how to say them. I can demonstrate who I am before you with my words, but I don't think it will accurately, fully depict who I am there. But God gave us his word. His word made text. And yet it's limited. 
We can meet God, but do we get the point of it? If the words are limited to foolish shows, God is that way. What if, just what if, there, was, there were words, or maybe there was a word of God that so accurately depicted God that you would say, there's almost no difference between God and his word. That maybe his word himself is God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God separate. And the word was God. There is such a word that is not just about, that is not limited in trying to depict who God is. It is so accurately reflective of God that is God himself. But you say, how can we reach? God cannot be seen. If anyone sees God, he will die. But he says in that John 1, 14, he says, but that word put on humanity. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John also says in 1 John 1, verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which our eyes have looked upon, and which our hands have handled, we could handle it. Why? Because he was made a human being. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. I love what Hebrews chapter 3 then tells us about the Son. He says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and what? The exact representation of his being. Can I tell you what I'm trying to say? If the text is meant to reveal to you who God is by being the word, and yet the text cannot exactly make you hold God, there is a word that you can see, that you can hold. His name is Jesus. Whenever you read the Bible, don't miss Jesus. Don't miss what? Jesus. He said, but, but, but we are talking about Ezra. Ezra studied the law. He was well versed in the law. He was an expert in the law. What is the purpose of the law that Moses wrote? Well, Jesus says in John 5 verse 46, he says that if you believe Moses, you will believe me. Why? Because all of what Moses wrote was about me. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I have called the prophets. I have come to what? Fulfill them. Why? They were speaking about me. You say, but Ezra said that, uh, the, the king said, Ezra had the wisdom of God. I'm not looking for the law. I'm looking for wisdom. Have you never read 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 1 verse 22, 24? It says, Greeks look for wisdom. And there's a way we can look for wisdom in the Bible that the Greeks look for it. But if you look for it in that way, you can miss the point of wisdom and miss God's wisdom. But here is God's wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called Christ, the wisdom of God. Ultimately, when you are reading the Bible and you want to see God come out, you are looking for Jesus. Turn to your neighbor and say, as you read the Bible, don't miss Jesus. Ultimately, it is Jesus who declares who God is. It is through him that we can see the glory of God. It is through him we can see what God feels about you and I. It is through him that we can see what God feels about sin. It is through him that we can see what God feels about ignorance. Don't miss Jesus. Don't just look for wisdom. Look for the wisdom that is Christ. 
because when you get the wisdom that is Christ, Colossians 2 verse 2 to 3 tells us that we can get the wisdom that is from Christ because in him are all the fountain of wisdom. And when you receive him, he says that a church can be united together. He says that when you are going through suffering, that we can be encouraged in heart. We first receive the wisdom that is Christ before we receive the wisdom from Christ. And here's the end. In Romans 8 verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ is the image of the invisible God. But the people who receive Christ, where is their destiny? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined them to be conformed to the image. Who is the image? The word became flesh. So listen, here's what the summary of the sermon is. We need a restoration of the word in our lives so that we can get the restoration by the word so that ultimately we'll be restored to the image of the word. Let's rise to our feet as we pray. At the end of the day, what is it we are looking for? Because one of the things I want us to pray about first and foremost is a heart desire, a desire for the word. Jeremiah says that your words came to me. Jeremiah 15 verse 16. He said, your word came to me and I ate them. He says, they were a joy and my heart's delight. Can you say that about yourself? There is no need, we're not condemning anyone. Are you the kind of person where you say, I ate the word of God and I was encouraged in my heart. It gave me joy. It was my heart's delight. Ask the Lord, you say, God, I want it to be my delight. I want the word to be my delight. Take away the things that stop me, oh God, from growing in the world. Take away the things that are distracting me, that are offering themselves as other delights. It could be a relationship. It could be material things. Maybe you, you are so fond of how you look. Maybe you are so fond of what you wear. Maybe you actually see gold as gold. But we are told in Psalm 19 verse 7. Yeah, Psalm 19 verse 10, it tells us this. It says that he, it is more precious. They are more precious than gold than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. In other words, the word itself is more precious to gold. Listen, if all I have is Jesus, I have something more than gold. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City